So if you want to turn to uh, chapter 14, Exodus chapter 14, and I'm going to start reading uh, in verse 15. We'll actually cover the whole chapter, but I don't want to stand up here and speed read 30-some verses to you. So <clears throat> we will begin in Exodus 14, beginning at verse 15. And the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was a cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch... The Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians so that the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. Pretty popular Bible story. Everybody knows this story. It's perhaps one of the most well-known Bible stories. But in this story are some small details, some things that might have a tendency to get overlooked. When we're looking at something so fantastic, imagine you're down at Fort Island Trail and the gulf splits wide open. It'd be pretty fascinating. So I want to focus today on some of these little details because they they can get overlooked. <coughs> so 
So before we get to that, how about a short recap of where we've been in Exodus? Not all of it, just uh, the last couple chapters. So the final plague was the Passover where we witnessed the death of the firstborn of the Egyptians. And so Pharaoh's had enough by this time. And he tells Moses and Aaron, take the people and leave now. The Israelites were instructed to gather their belongings and prepare for an exodus from Egypt. Israelites had been in Egypt for about 430 years. And a lot of those years were in slavery. Some really hard times and difficult times. And now freedom was within their grasp. It was close at hand as God's promise to Abraham was about to be fulfilled. So chapters 12 and 13 kind of give us the preparation here for this journey, and it shows us the instructions that God gave to Moses. Uh, there are several, several instructions. Uh, new instructions for the Passover. Uh, some instructions for um, the consecration of the firstborn, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, some worship practices that God expected the people to continue. And um, we know that Pharaoh and the Egyptian people say, you guys got to go out of here. But they didn't go without God's favor, did they? Because the Egyptians gave them what? They gave them their goodies. They gave them their gold and silver. They gave them things to go, to leave. So this is how the journey begins. And the Israelites are following a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire at the night that guides them, that stays with them. Uh, a constant reminder and reassurance of God's presence and protection. So here the journey begins. And uh, let me read the first four verses of Exodus 14. In the first four verses, God is going to tell the people to turn back. Turn back. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pihahiroth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. God told them to turn back. Now from the standpoint of military strategy, the detour that God is taking the people on seems like that of a madman. Um, they're on their way to freedom. And God says, turn back. Turn back. I assume that means turn back towards Egypt. But don't go to Egypt. You're going to stop. In front of Baal Zephon. Baal. We all know what that means, right? That is a term for pagan, specifically Canaanite gods. So scholars are all over the map on what Baal Zephon is, other than it's a location that we can't identify. But as we know, names in ancient cultures had meaning. 
So if this place is named Baal Zephon, it's named after some sort of idol, some sort of false god. Some scholars say it's the god of the north. Other scholars, which I tend to side with, say it's the god of the sea, since we are at the banks of the Red Sea. Whatever it is, I think it's important to notice that this is the first encounter Israel has with Baals, Baal worship, which would ultimately become a huge problem for the nation of Israel. In fact, so big of a problem, it will be part of the, one of the main reasons that they're exiled from Israel. So when God parts the Red Sea, he will not only do it in front of Egypt. He's already defeated their gods once. Pharaoh, remember, is identified as a son of God. So God will defeat them again. And he's going to do it in front of this place of Baal worship. I think that's a hint for the future for Israel but I think they miss it. And in verses 3 and 4, we see how the plan's going to unfold. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. This phrase, harden Pharaoh's heart, We've seen it a bunch during the plagues. And that's usually how our English translations translate it, harden the heart. Perhaps a better translation of that is strengthen the heart. In other words, God isn't making Pharaoh more ugly and more evil and more cruel. He's strengthening his heart. He's granting him his wishes. He's turning him loose. So Pharaoh thinks these people are wandering aimlessly. They can't make it without him. He's Pharaoh. They don't have what it takes to make it in the wilderness without Pharaoh to lead them. They need their idol to show them how to live. They need their idol to make them happy. They need their idol to know what to do and to know how to live and to know how to survive and to be fulfilled. They need their idol, Pharaoh. Why on earth would God put these people in that kind of position? We already said it's not a good military strategy. These people, remember why God didn't take them through Philistia when they first left? We were told that they couldn't face the battle. They weren't ready for battle. And now God orchestrates this to defeat Pharaoh. But here the people are. Their back is against the sea, nowhere to go. And the army of Pharaoh is 
going to be bearing down on them. But his army would be destroyed. And then it would become obvious to everyone that God had planned everything by putting his own people between the desert and the sea. Israel, Egypt, the world would know that God alone was God and that the glory and victory belonged to him alone. God wanted to gain his glory at Pharaoh's expense. He said, I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army. If this strategy seems familiar, it's probably because it's the same one God used at the cross when he sent Christ. Philip Ryken says to Satan, it must have seemed like Jesus had no idea what he was doing. He was God the Son, yet he allowed himself to be handed over to sinful men who stripped him, beat him, and crucified him. On the cross, he was so vulnerable. Satan thought he had the strategic advantage, and he pressed the advantage to death. But, of course, this was his fatal mistake because the whole thing was a ruse. The cross was not a defeat for Jesus, but victory. And by making atonement, he was able to gain eternal victory over sin, death, and Satan. Thus the Bible says that having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So you see, for God's strategy to work, Pharaoh would have to pick up the chase. He'd have to take the bait. So now imagine going back to the Egyptian palace and Pharaoh's having another temper tantrum. He's realized now, I've let the workforce go. And his cabinet officials, they're not too happy about it either because who's going to have to do the work now? They let all the workers go. So Pharaoh decides... I'm going to have to go get them. I'm going to have to go round these folks back up and get them back here. After all, who would complete the monuments to Pharaoh? How would he ever complete all of the building projects he had in mind? Pharaoh needed the Hebrew slaves. So verses 5 through 10 tell us of his plan, and he puts it into motion, and off they go, charging 600-some chariots and soldiers. In verses 10 through 12, the passage shifts to the Israelites and their deep fear and anxiety as they find themselves trapped on the banks of the Red Sea. And as they see Pharaoh's army approaching, they became terrified and cried out to the Lord. And they immediately regretted leaving Egypt, believing their situation would lead to their destruction. In all fairness, I don't think we can blame them. In their fear, the Israelites directed their frustration towards Moses, blaming him for bringing them out of Egypt to die in the desert. So their fear was causing their faith to wobble and to waver, to lose trust in God and his man Moses, questioning the purpose and the wisdom of these two. They even went to the extent of suggesting that it would have been better off to serve the Egyptians than to face the dire circumstances they were in. 
And I've told you before, that will be a battle cry for these people while they're in the wilderness. It's something they'll repeat over and over. We should have stayed in Egypt. We should go back to Egypt. Back to slavery. So we see their intense fear, panic, with this threat to their life. And we see wavering faith and a tendency to forget what God has previously done. Despite witnessing the plagues, the miracles in Egypt, fear now clouded their judgment and gratitude, leading to doubts, leading to regrets. I wonder if anyone here has ever experienced that. Doubts, regrets. I don't think God's doing this the right way. It's not how I would do it. I mean, look at the situation. Could it be worse? You know, in a sermon from Philippians, Don Carson uses the Passover to make a brilliant point about faith. He says two Hebrew slaves were talking on the afternoon of the first Passover. They were discussing the instructions Moses had given them about the meal and smearing the sacrificial blood on the doorpost and the lintel. And one slave asked the other, have you sprinkled the blood, as we were told? The other slave replied, well, yeah, I followed Moses' instructions exactly. The first slave replies, me too. But I'm a little nervous about this whole thing. My son means the world to me, and I don't know what I'd do without him. After all, Moses says the angel of death is coming through the land tonight and taking all the firstborn. And his friend replied to him, but that's the point. Moses said when the angel sees the blood, he will pass by the house. The house is protected by the blood. I know. I know, says the worried slave. But you have to admit, things have been really strange here for the last couple of months. All these plagues, some of them affected only the Egyptians, but some of them affected us too. What if this one does? I can't bear the thought of it. The other slave said, I don't understand why you're so worried. You know, I have a son too. I love my son as much as you love yours, yet I'm at peace. God promised that the angel would pass over every house, protected by the blood of the sacrificed lamb. I did what he instructed us to do, and you did what he instructed us to do. As for me, I'm going to take God at his word. That night, the angel of death passed through the land. Now, which slave lost their son? The answer, of course, is neither of them. See, the promise that the angel of death would pass over the homes that were protected by the blood wasn't based on the intensity of their faith. It's simply a matter of obedience. Sprinkle the lamb's blood on the doorpost and trust that God will be faithful. And so it is with us who have trusted Christ and his life, death, and resurrection. The promise of deliverance, the assurance of the Almighty God accepts us, is not tied to the intensity of our faith or the consistency of our works or the purity of our faith. 
it is tied to the object of our faith, Christ. Oh, how sometimes we forget that. Oh, how we get wrapped up in ourselves. Our hope is tied to the object, the person of our faith. And when we approach God in prayer, our plea is not that we have been good today. I just came home from church full of praise. Oh, God, I sang loud at church today. And I squinted really hard when we prayed. And I'm going to try hard today, God, to be good. Christ has died for us. That is the assurance. That's the gospel. Against that plea, against that prayer, Satan has no power. He has power against you. He doesn't have any power against the gospel. So instead of remembering God's previous acts of deliverance, they fixated on the problem in front of them. And their panic caused them to question the purpose of their journey. And they even contemplated returning, going back to Egypt. See, their doubt and fear was fueled by a limited perspective. They failed to understand the bigger picture and the full extent of God's power. They didn't understand how much God loved them. Ever feel like you don't have the full picture? Ever stop and think, I don't really get how much God loves me. I don't really get it. I mean, I say it. I think I understand it. Oh, but do we really? Do we really get it? Tim Keller has this illustration that he used frequently about a coin dropping in a vending machine. We've all done it. We've all put a coin in the vending machine to get something out of it. And in the older vending machines, you hear that coin begin to fall. And sometimes you hear it stop, and you know that's not right. The coin didn't drop. It didn't drop where it's supposed to, and now it's stuck. And that's what happens to our faith sometimes. The coin gets stuck. And our faith gets stuck. And we don't understand. And we forget. We just simply can't grasp how much God has done for us, how much he loves us, and how much he intends to do for us. The Israelites couldn't see it either because they were so wrapped up in their circumstance. I mean, come on. <laughs> they are trapped by the sea, and there's an army bearing down on them. I don't fault them. I would have been just like them, no doubt in my mind. But despite their wavering faith, God didn't stop. He didn't say, oh, well, these, they aren't going to make it. They don't have enough faith. He did what he was going to do because he's God and he's faithful to his promises. And what he did was faithful to his covenant promise to Abraham, the promise to Adam and Eve, the promise to you and I. 
God remains steadfast. And this passage just shows how people struggle to trust God during difficult and uncertain times. And yet God is faithful. He remains faithful. And I'm not saying it's easy. We have had struggles in the last two weeks. And it wasn't always easy. I know some of you have had struggles recently. And some of you have struggles right now. And just me standing here saying these things doesn't make it easier. It doesn't make the struggle go away. And sometimes I have to live with that pain and that struggle and that anguish. I have to sit with it for a little while. Before I can ever start thinking about, God, I need you. I need your help so desperately. Because that pain has to do some work. It has something to do for me because God sent it to me to change me. There was a time in my Christian walk when I early in the discovery of doctrines of grace, when I was in the cage stage, which some of you have probably heard that phrase before, when I was a stoic, man, it didn't matter what happened. Don't worry about it. God's got it. But I soon learned, yes, indeed, God's got it. Yes, indeed, God has brought it my way. But God didn't say it wouldn't hurt. God didn't say I wouldn't suffer and I wouldn't struggle and I wouldn't question because that's part of the work. It's part of what drives us back to Christ. Not my words. Those things that God sends us, those obstacles, they have a job to do. Ultimately, you turn to Christ. I hope. I hope that's how your life works. In verse 13, Moses says to the people, Don't be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you'll never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. Now, that's a pretty simple and profound command. Don't be afraid. He acknowledges their fear. He says, but don't stay there. Don't live there. Set it aside. But be still. Stand firm. Even in our most challenging moments, we must cling to the anchor that is Christ. Now, you might not reach for it right away. Many times in my life, I have not. But that anchor is underneath me. And all I have to do is reach out my hand. But sometimes, i got to sit with the pain for a while. Sometimes, i got to sit with the frustration for a while.
God has a plan for deliverance, just like he was about to deliver these people. He has a plan for our deliverance too. And maybe the most important thing Moses says to them is, the battle is not yours alone. The Lord God will fight for you. Our battles are not our own to fight alone. We must remember Christ is also a warrior fighting on our behalf. See, God takes the initiative in ensuring the Israelites and us that he will fight on our behalf. He doesn't ask us to fight alone or rely on our own strength or wisdom. Instead, he promises to engage in our battles actively. As our Heavenly Father, he is deeply invested in our well-being, always ready to intercede. God invites us into a posture of trust and surrender. Now, being still doesn't mean idleness or complacency and continually sitting around, woe is me. There may be some of that. There probably will be some of that. Rightfully so. But you can't stay there. In time, in God's timing, fears, anxieties, we will place them into his hands as a choice that we make, obedience. But don't beat yourself up because you struggle. Don't be like I was years ago and God's got this. He does. But it's still a struggle. It's still hard. And sometimes it wrenches our soul. It numbs our soul. But we're not alone. Christ stands beside us. His spirit resides within us. And Christ sits at the Father's right hand to intercede on our behalf. God asked Moses, why are you crying to me? (coughs) Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff. Stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so the Israelites can go through. Now, at this moment, the Israelites are, we need a miracle. Did this happen instantly? No, it's a day and a night. It's a a long time. (laughs) Holding up this staff, the water splitting, the people going through. There's over 600,000 people. You know, when we watch the Ten Commandments, it takes about three minutes on the movie. Here it seems like it takes quite some time. It's not immediate. It takes time. Sometimes it takes time for God's work to happen. But the people had a choice to make. They could stand there and be terrified, or they could start walking, start following God's command when the time was right. The time was not right until the sea was parted. And I make that comparison to your struggles. Sometimes 
We want to move forward, but the sea's not parted yet. So sometimes, I'm going to keep saying this, we have to sit for a minute with the pain, with the anguish, with whatever's going on haywire in our life. But the sea will part eventually. And it's up to you to get up and go when that happens. Now, you may not go to problem resolved. In fact, the older we get, the less likely that is. But nonetheless, we go because we know that Christ walks with us. We know that he's faithful to his promise. And we know that he's made some tremendous promises to us and on our behalf. So then we have the sea parting, one of the most miraculous stories in the Bible. Movies about it. It's big stuff. It's fantastic stuff. And it does illustrate God's power over the forces of this earth. When he splits the sea and his people march through, they march out of Egypt. When they cross the Red Sea, they're no longer in Egypt. They're in the wilderness, a land claimed by nobody but occupied by many. But they had to take that step. Of course, they had good motivation to take that step, didn't they? Sometimes we don't always have that motivation. But sometimes we need some motivation so that we can see the sea when it parts. And we can trust God and we can move forward. There are so many lessons in this story about God's faithfulness, his power, our fears, our doubts, and even our obedience, even our willingness sometimes to actually do what God says to do. In spite of what we see as obstacles, the Red Sea was a big obstacle. For those people, it was a gateway to freedom. It simply had to wait for God to work and to part the sea and to be willing to move forward. So in their story, obviously we can see they had to trust God in a really difficult situation. It seemed like there was an insurmountable obstacle, but God made a way. When we encounter seemingly impossible circumstances, we can look to this story. We can look to places like Psalm 46, which reminds us that God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble, one of Martin Luther's favorite hymns. What about Isaiah 43? God assures us that when we pass through the waters, he will be with us and the rivers will not sweep over us. And as hard as it is to do sometimes, the only real answer we have is to cling to Christ. 
It's like Peter said, where else would I go? When you reach the end of yourself, turn to Christ. Rely on Christ. The Israelites had to be obedient, too. They had to take that step. And we're called to live a life of obedience, even when we don't understand. Proverbs 3 reminds us to trust in the Lord with all our hearts and lean not on our own understanding. In John 14, Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commands. James says that faith without works is dead. So obedience is important in our lives. But that obedience is accompanied by Christ walking with us. Imagine the disciples watching Jesus being arrested, placed in chains, taken before Pilate, paraded down the street, beaten, spit on, carrying a cross, taken to a hill, placed between two criminals, and crucified on a cross as the disciples stand helplessly by. One of them even denying he knew who Jesus was. I, I don't hang out with him. I don't know him. Don't you think to them, they were almost free. Their freedom was at hand. And now here's this obstacle. The Messiah is dying. On a cross, uttering the words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yet even in the dark and hopeless moment, God was still there. God Himself hanging and dying on the cross, still working to gain their long sought after freedom. A freedom that would transcend earthly bounds. Another mighty act of God. A mighty display of his power. Another act that would shock the world. Like the Israelites of old, the disciples witnessed divine intervention that shattered expectations and transformed their understanding of freedom. So think about your journey. The challenges we face and the moments of uncertainty are not roadblocks. Not roadblocks. They're like gateways to something bigger because God is faithful to his promises. And just like he was to the Israelites and his disciples, at times our path might feel uncertain and full of obstacles. Out of our control. But it's no accident. It's God leading us to our own Red Sea moment where obstacles become gateways. Again, I won't tell you it'll be easy. Sometimes you have to sit with the pain for a while. So let that ring in your heart for a while. We are going from longing to liberation, and God is right here with us, parting the waters and leading us to freedom. He promised that. Picture that. Our journey will have moments that seem like dead ends. 
that God is orchestrating something divine in those very moments. And we stand at the edge of our own Red Sea. And as we take that first step, let's declare, I'm free because God is here beside me. Amen to that. Thank you.